Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Jonathan Turley's magnificent impeachment testimony this morning, impeachment and the dueling reports, Trump wins at NATO, Feminexit, and the Kamala Harris is out of the race, and George Zimmerman sues Trayvon's family. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And hello again, and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis, and this is today's First Five. You likely know that in Washington today, the impeachment proceeding against President Trump moved into the House Judiciary Committee, chaired by Chairman Nadler. So. All the hearings you're watching for the last couple of weeks were in the House Intelligence Committee. We're now on the Judiciary Committee, which is actually the committee that has jurisdiction to hold an impeachment hearing, ultimately to make a vote and then send it to the floor of the House. So it was a big, big day in Washington today as that impeachment hearing opened in the Judiciary Committee. The way the rules are set up, the Democrats got to, well, they can invite all the witnesses they want. Republicans got one witness. But the Republican witness who was called today, a constitutional scholar, a nationally renowned, enormously respected Democrat scholar, constitutional scholar, Jonathan Turley, gave an opening statement today. And his, you can read his entire statement on my website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, drop down list of links. But what I want to have you hear right now, these are some excerpts of what Jonathan Turley had to say to the House Judiciary Committee on this first day of the impeachment hearing against President Trump. And this is Matt, the one I believe has that clip. William Jefferson Clinton. I never thought that I would have to appear a second time to address the same question with regard to another sitting president. Yet here we are. The elements are strikingly similar. The intense rancor and rage of the public debate is the same. It's the atmosphere that the framers anticipated. The stifling intolerance of opposing views is the same. I'd like to start, therefore, perhaps incongruously, by stating an irrelevant fact. I'm not a supporter of President Trump. I voted against him. My personal views of President Trump are as irrelevant to my impeachment testimony as they should be to your impeachment vote. President Trump will not be our last president, and what we leave in the wake of this scandal will shape our democracy for generations to come. I'm concerned about lowering impeachment standards to fit a paucity of evidence and an abundance of anger. I believe this impeachment not only fails to satisfy the standard of past impeachments, but would create a dangerous precedent for future impeachments. When the framers met in Philadelphia, they were quite familiar with impeachment and its abuses. The framers rejected a proposal to add maladministration because Madison objected that so vague a term would be equivalent to a tenure during the pleasure of the Senate. In the end, various standards that had been used in the past were rejected. Corruption, obtaining office by improper means, betraying the trust of a foreign, to a foreign power, negligence, perfidy, 
peculation and oppression. Perfidy or lying and peculation, self-dealing, are particularly relevant to our current controversy. My testimony explores the impeachment cases of Nixon, Johnson, and Clinton. The closest of these three cases is to the 1868 impeachment of Andrew Johnson. It is not a model or an association that this committee should relish. In that case, a group of opponents of the presidents called the Radical Republicans created a trapdoor crime in order to impeach the president. They even defined it as a high misdemeanor. There was another shared aspect besides the atmosphere of that impeachment and also the unconventional style of the two presidents. And that shared element is speed. This impeachment would rival the Johnson impeachment as the shortest in history, depending on how one counts the relevant days. This would be the first impeachment in history where there would be considerable debate, and in my view, not compelling evidence of the commission of a crime. We are living in the very period described by Alexander Hamilton, a period of agitated passions. I get it. You're mad. The president's mad. My Republican friends are mad. My Democratic friends are mad. My wife is mad. My kids are mad. So we're all mad. Where has that taken us? Will a slipshod impeachment make us less mad? Will it only invite an invitation for the madness to follow every future administration? That is why this is wrong. To impeach a president on this record would expose every future president to the same type of inchoate impeachment. Folks, I hope that you can share just this segment of this show or share a link to that the opening, the portion of the opening statements that were given again. That was Jonathan Turley. He's a law professor at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He is one of the premier unparalleled and, and no one questions premier constitutional scholars in this country. We are at a very, very serious time in this country. His opening testimony, just the portion you heard, makes clear how anyone clear thinking, anyone understanding the Constitution, anyone staying focused on looking at the evidence actually presented, there is no basis at all justified by the Constitution for this impeachment. It was very wise of him to point out everybody's mad. I know people, everyone has friends like the ones he described. Republican friends who are angry that the president is facing this impeachment challenge. Democrat friends and relatives who are saying, I don't care what the grounds are, I don't even care what he did. They just dislike him, they want him out. And that is pretty much the impetus behind this Democrat effort to remove the president. It's not just personal dislike of personality. It is all the things we've talked about in this show so many times but it's getting really serious in Washington. What motivates the Democrats are really big issues, like President Trump is riding the ship of America's economy, putting us back on track as a nation rooted in liberty and free markets, putting us back on track for a nation that relishes and cherishes our sovereignty, our unique American identity, our insistence on a robust American economy, a robust American sovereignty that does not defer to the globalists of this world. 
President Trump's election in 2016 was a radical course change for this country, and that beneath it all is really driving much of the impeachment effort the Democrat Party is pushing. They had this country so far turned left under President Obama, so far near the edge of the cliff of just over the cliff to socialism, they thought they had Hillary lined up to continue President Trump's excuse me, continue President Obama's obliteration of the idea of the unique, extraordinary idea of America rooted in liberty, and President Obama was shifting that away, was just working away at it for eight years, diminishing the role of America in the world, diminishing the sense of American pride, diminishing the identity, the unique, extraordinary identity of this country, and trying to say that America is really no better than any other country. And folks, I get it. Every country is a wonderful country, and many people love their countries. But students of American history, students of the Constitution, students of the formation of this country realize the extraordinarily unique greatness of the ideas that founded this country. And those ideas are what leftists in this country hate. They hate those founding ideas. And the idea that President Trump came along, reinvigorated love of America, reinvigorated the population to believe in America, to think that we matter enough that we actually have to have secure borders, to believe in a robust economy that's based on free markets, which in turn means individuals re-engaging, being self-reliant, participating in the American dream. All of that was putting America back on track. What President Trump brought to this country was not radical right or radical conservatism. It was plain, homespun, hometown America is what President Trump talked about in his campaign, what he brought to this country, and that drives leftists nuts. So in this impeachment hearing, I'm not gonna talk much more about it today because it's a, we're gonna talk uh, about what the, the reports are out so far, what the Democrats versus Republicans are saying, but in closing the first five to on the impeachment, I know it's excruciating to watch, and I don't sit and watch it. I couldn't sit and watch it, but understand what you just heard Professor Jonathan Turley, renowned constitutional scholar from George Washington University, what he laid out is all you really need to know about this impeachment. There is nothing there in terms of all of the evidence and two and a half years of the Mueller investigation and months and months of digging and going and finding some anonymous witness, everyone's supposed to not know who it is, to uh, submit a complaint about President Trump. All of that digging, all that looking, all the secret proceedings that were held inside the House, in the basement of the House, where Republicans were not allowed, the media was not allowed. These are things that you do when you know what you're doing is wrong. This is what the Democrats, why in the basement of the House, they were hiding out, taking secret depositions and secret testimony, digging, 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 trying to find something to cause them to conclude they could possibly have legitimate basis to impeach the president. They found nothing. What they have is hogwash, and Turley called them on that this morning. I urge you to share that, that clip and remind yourself, listen to the whole clip, remind yourself what an extraordinarily important time this is in American history. We are literally fighting about holding on to the republic as founded. And that, my friends, is today's first five. Well, you likely know that there were uh, impeachment um, reports issued, uh, and I actually I want to commend some of the Republicans in Washington. Most Republicans, elected Republicans in the House and Senate, have been conveniently silent 
during this attack on President Trump, during this attack on his presidency, attack on his right to actually conduct foreign policy, which is, after all, what the Constitution says his job is. So most Republicans, pretty dang silent. But there were a few of them, three Republicans, went ahead after the House Intelligence Committee com completed their House their um, impeachment proceedings, three Republicans, and it was Devin Nunes, we've talked with him many times, you know, the ranking member of Intelligence Committee, Jim Jordan, and Michael McCall. They issued 123-page report after the House Intelligence Committee completed their impeachment hearing and before the Democrats had the chance to put out their 300-page impeachment uh, report after they completed that hearing. And I really want to commend the Republicans who had the courage and the foresight and the bravery and the just insistence on doing this. So in quick sum, so what we have is these competing dueling reports. We have the Republicans putting out this report by those three I mentioned, 123-page report. I want to tell you just a couple of conclusions they came to. The Democrats' impeachment equity is not the, excuse me, the Democrats' impeachment inquiry is not the organic outgrowth of serious misconduct. It is an orchestrated campaign to upend our political system. The evidence presented does not prove any of the Democrat allegations, and none of the Democrats' witnesses testified to having evidence of bribery, extortion, or any high crime or misdemeanor. So Republicans putting out on record, at least those three, putting out on record saying this is not going to stand. We are going to stand up, not just for President Trump, although they are standing for President Trump, they're standing for the much higher idea that Jonathan Turley was getting at in his remarks you just heard. The idea, we cannot have a constitutional government as created by our Constitution if a president can re be removed simply because there are a lot of people are angry and a lot of people on the Democrat side don't like President Trump and they want him out and they'll do anything to get him out, they're, they're pointing out you can't have a country if you let them get away with this. There's nothing that has been alleged by and no evidence presented to the Democrats in the entire House Intelligence Committee hearing that in any way comes close to meeting the impeachment standard, it doesn't even come close to wrongdoing. They are utilizing that capacity only malicious manipulators have of taking innocent conduct, clearly forceful, clearly being a president who knows he believes in, he's changing American foreign policy. He's moving away from the Obama era, submission, apology, surrender to the world's views on everything. And, and President Trump is instead reasserting the identity, importance, and uniqueness of America. This drives leftist nuts. Three other points I want to tell you about the Republicans report. Uh, there, by the way, there's a great summary of the Republicans report on our website. This is by Sarah Carter. She's another home run level, genuine investigative journalist. And her report, she does a great article and she hits the high points of what the Republicans said in this 123 page report. She points out, Republicans are saying, 
President Trump, they're acknowledging he has a deep-seated, genuine, and reasonable skepticism of Ukraine due to his history of pervasive corruption. President Trump has a long-held skepticism of U.S. foreign assistance and believes Europe should pay its fair share for mutual defense. That was part of what President Trump was saying about the Ukraine. Why are we always paying all the costs of defense for these countries that need help. President Trump's concerns about Hunter Biden's role in Burisma's board are valid. As we talked about in this show many times, the Obama State Department noted concerns about Hunter Biden's relationship with Burisma in 2015 and 2016. So the Republicans put out a report, point after point after point, based in actual fact. Based on evidence everyone can see. Based on the actual constitutional role the president holds, which is he gets to decide foreign policy. And I, want, I can't urge you strong enough to read this stuff to be, edi- to be ready to respond to your friends who, if any of them are saying to you, well, you know, now the House Judiciary Committee is saying uh, they're, they're gonna in favor of impeachment, excuse me, now the House Intelligence Committee is saying they support impeachment. You know, now it's in judiciary, he's toast, they found stuff on him. There's nothing there. But you should read things like Sarah Carr's report to understand that. There was the Democrat, uh, what happened in the Democrat uh, report, it came out of the House Intelligence Committee, and it was, of course, divided by party line. So 13 to nine, party line, 300-page report, which essentially concludes that President Trump uh, engaged in conduct they believe is impeachable, and they're describing it as uh, foreign policy toward the Ukraine, that his scheme, Trump's scheme, which is basically standing up for what he believes in, subverted U.S. foreign policy toward the Ukraine. I want to put a comma there and make this point. President Trump gets to decide foreign policy with the Ukraine. He gets to decide foreign policy with every country. That's what the Constitution makes clear. It's his job. This Democrat report whining about President Trump's decision to recall our ambassador over there, acting as though that could be evidence of wrongdoing or nefarious purpose, he's allowed to recall an ambassador who serves at his pleasure for any reason. He can recall because he doesn't like her haircut. He can recall for any reason. And he had very serious reasons to recall that ambassador because numerous reports came to him telling him she, the ambassador, was undermining President Trump's foreign policy in the Ukraine. And yet the Democrats think that's okay to put in a report about the basis for impeachment. It is, uh, so I just tell you folks, these two reports, dueling reports, you can read about both of them on our website, but recognize there are a few Republicans actually fighting. I could probably name, I used to say on one hand, I'll give you two hands. I could name on two hands, the Republicans in the US House and US Senate actually standing up against this grotesque abuse of power by the Democrats in the House, 10 Republicans, probably at most, actually standing up and fighting for President Trump. And one last funny thing I'm going to throw in here before I turn to our next topic about Trump and NATO. I read something funny this morning I had not realized before. So Devin Nunes, uh, he is the next target, uh, if you will. He is is someone that uh, that Adam Schiff really, really wants to get. Devin Nunes is irate about the ability that Devin Nunes has shown to get the real story out during the Mueller investigation, all of that complete hogwash, and under this investigation, all this hogwash, Schiff is trying to concoct a narrative 
against Devin Nunes. So someone in commenting on Schiff's effort to concoct something to accuse Nunes of pointed out Adam Schiff actually had a dream in his younger days of being a screenwriter. That's what he really wanted to do. Here he is in Congress thinking he rules the country. At this moment, there are few Americans on the Democrat side higher or other than Adam Schiff in terms of directing this country's future. Now, shift over to Nadler, but Schiff really has it. I just found that very entertaining. Adam Schiff wanted to be a screenwriter and maybe what he's doing right now and this impeachment thing is kind of concocting the story he wants it to be and uh, waiting to see if somehow he can finally find, he apparently had some very mixed success in his past screenwriting efforts and maybe now he's finally thought, he thought up a story that may actually fly. But I tell you folks, we have to pay close attention to what's happening in Washington, especially now that the impeachment hearing is in front of the Judiciary Committee to figure out uh, what the Democrats are really gonna think they have. I wanna close this segment about the uh, dueling reports. There was another clip I sent to Matt, the Extremely Wonderful, uh, and this is a clip of the um, House Republican press conference. I just posed, uh, chose one segment of a short segment, but I want you to hear there are people fighting, and this is what the House Republican press conference statements have had, uh, had to say about the impeachment inquiry. This is obviously Liz Cheney. Despite the fact that they did this, and even with every unfair advantage and unprecedented advantage they gave themselves, including preventing the president from having any access uh, to the proceedings, preventing his counsel from having any participation in the proceedings, they now have come out of this and fundamentally failed to prove their case. So we're going to be moving into tomorrow where we're going to have the panel of uh, uh, constitutional uh, scholars, uh, liberal law professors predominantly, and one Republican witness. Uh, and the Democrats are now going to be asking them questions about whether or not uh, the behavior that they uh, are inaccurately and, and lacking in fact, the behavior that they're describing would be impeachable. We would remind the Speaker of the House once again that the power of impeachment rests with the House of Representatives. The Constitution does not say uh, that impeachment shall be the responsibility of a panel of liberal activists, but that's uh, where we're going to be tomorrow. So uh, in the meantime, we are very focused on the important and critical work that's not getting done. And uh, on that point, I would also just note that the Intelligence Committee has been hijacked for the last 70 days, uh, unable to and unwilling because the Democrats are in charge to focus on the real threats that face this nation. And the Democrats will be fundamentally accountable uh, for the damage that they're doing because the Intel Committee has not been able to focus on critical threats like uh, the threats that we face from China, the threats that we face from Russia, uh, the threats from North Korea, Iran, terrorism. None of those things have been uh, in the purview of the Intel Committee because they've been focused on uh, this, uh, this sham impeachment effort. Okay, that is Liz Cheney. I love her. You know, she is tough. She has that same demeanor her dad has of just confident, presence, speaking firmly, speaking in fact. She was completely wonderful. That was obviously from yesterday's hearing. And I love that she issued kind of a warning or a, a reminder uh, to Nancy Pelosi about what this impeachment proceeding is supposed to be all about. And I'll close this segment by one more point I wanna make related to these dueling reports and to the fact that now the impeachment is in front of the House Judiciary Committee. It is true that the Constitution vests authority in the U.S. House to determine whether high crimes and misdemeanors have, been, have occurred, 
whether there's anything impeachable that was done by this president or other officers who are listed in the Constitution who can also be impeached. But ultimately, the responsibility to hold the feet to the fire of our elected members of Congress, Republican and Democrat, the ultimate responsibility of holding their feet to the fire of the Constitution really rests in the hands of the American people. It rests in the hands of people like you and me and people following us closely enough, being tuned into what the Constitution really says and what the Democrats have come up with, which is nothing, and deciding what am I going to do about it? Am I going to sit back and shake my head and mention to my family at dinner, gee whiz, this is terrible. They're impeaching the president. He hasn't done anything wrong. Is that enough for us to just sit around and say that to each other, to tune into my show and say, hey, I'm going to share this segment with my friend. It is not even close to enough. We have to be activists in this argument because it's not just about defending President Trump. You like him, you don't like him. People on whatever you think, People on both sides of the aisle need to understand this is more than an assault on President Trump. It is an assault on him, an unjustified attack on him, which it means that it's an assault and an attack on the American people, on the voters who chose him, who support him, who still want him to be in office. Ultimately, it's an attack on the very constitutional structure of our country. If you can have a Democrat majority in Congress vote to impeach a president because they're mad about his foreign policy because their foreign policy gurus in the state department or whatever other gurus they they turn to disagree with president with the president's policies and they say essentially that's the basis to impeach we've really truly lost the constitution we've lost the constitutional structure of government and that was exactly what Jonathan Turley was trying to warn about in that clip I played in the first segment. This is such a serious time in this country. It is not a time to tune out and say, hey, I don't really, you know, I've had enough of politics. I'm going to focus on my, you know, tennis game. No, we don't have time for that. Everyone's got to be engaged. There may ultimately be some kind of march in Washington to stand up for President Trump. I don't, I, people I think are waiting to see what the House really does. But there needs to be a massive voice from the American people talking to elected members of the House and the Senate, Republican and Democrat, just saying, don't you dare. Don't you dare remove this president because you don't like his policies. You wish your gal Hillary won. You think he shouldn't be so tough on the Ukraines. Or you think he shouldn't have this foreign policy. We will literally lose our country if we let the Democrats get away with this sham impeachment. There was also a big story in Washington today. There was talk in Washington about NATO. You know, President Trump was over at the NATO conference uh, in London. It was actually the 70th anniversary, 7-0, 70th anniversary of NATO. So founded in 1949. And it's actually interesting, before I get to the NATO talk, NATO was actually founded in response to the uh, growing aggression of communist Russia. As Russia grew in power and was clearly not just powerful itself, but intending to expand its power, intending to push communism as it did for decades, NATO was formed in response to that, to say the free world, NATO was like the free world, and Russia was communist, is a communist world, the not free world. That's what NATO's roots were are and 
what happened over the decades as Russia, you know, finally we had through the we had defeats of the communist Russians. We ultimately had the Cold War, and we had President um, Reagan come along and just you know win the Cold War for all the reasons we talked about many times on this show. But eventually, communism was crippled. Eventually, you know, the Berlin Wall fell. Eventually, communists as a death grip on the Russian people collapsed, although it's still a very, very communist-like country, even though the communists don't have a death grip on the people like they do in China. But NATO had been a little bit, after that time, after they lost their central organizing focus, there was a lot of question about what NATO should be doing, or what should be, beside helping each other, agreeing to help each other, band together, blah, blah. So two things about, or I guess three things about NATO. You will hear people talking about President Trump's presence over at the NATO conference and how there was a, a clip that came out. This is not a friendly clip to President Trump, but I wanted to play it and then talk about it. So this is uh, the world gossiper, world gossipers, they were world gossipers, world leaders were caught on tape gossiping about President Trump, kind of making fun of him. And this little snippet from a gathering at NATO went viral on Twitter. I'm gonna play it, at Ma ask Matt the Wonderful to play. It's hard to hear because there's noise in the room and someone's conveniently put you know, the words at the bottom so you can read if you, if you can't hear what they're saying. I'm gonna play this clip and then talk about NATO and real leadership. Okay, so that went viral. And, you know, it was, you know, people who are, are quasi-ish allies, of course, uh, Francis Macron and Canada's Trudeau. And so they're kind of making fun of President Trump. President Trump canceled a closing press conference, apparently in response to that, that video being released. And of course, the leftists on Twitter went wild talking about how, you know, Trump is embarrassing America. And look, these world leaders are making fun of him. They don't like him. They're diminishing. You know, he, he, Trump, is diminishing our role in the world. I want to set the record straight about that. Yeah, these goofballs were mocking him. And, you know, it's a free world. They are a lot. They're leaders of countries. They can say what they want to say. But really think of the reason they were there in NATO. President Trump led the charge during his campaign and continuing now to say, this is one of the ways in which America has been taken advantage of by other world powers. For decades, we Americans pay far more than our fair share. Other countries simply say, well, hey, you know, if, if Americans are gonna take care of us, why should we put our money in? Why do we have to do that? And they weren't paying. Well, everyone agreed, by the way, joining NATO, you're supposed to put in toward the NATO budget, 2%, 2% of your GDP. So President Trump came along, candidate Trump, and then President Trump saying, come on, this is, this is not, I mean, you're basically paying, you're, you're, you know, we get this organization going and you have us, America, pretty much paying all of it. So he started pressuring about that. So in, um, he, when he assumed office, when President Trump came to office, 
Only three NATO countries of the 27, apart from us, so three others apart from us, um, were paying their 2% of GDP to the defense. So their 2% of their country's GDP was going to NATO. That was United Kingdom, Poland, and of all oddities, Estonia. So who knew? So President Trump came along and said, you know what, actually it's not okay, not okay. Everyone's gotta pay their fair share. And the folks, this isn't just about money. It's about the idea of getting skin in the game, of how much do you vote for NATO to do? What do you want NATO's force to be there for? Who's in charge of the NATO forces? So if you're saying, as a country, you know, we don't really care, America pays for it all, we just sit back and do nothing, uh, you don't have skin in the game like you need to. So it was happening to President Trump, so he pushed that number, he pushed people, member countries of the 27 countries, to contribute to NATO. So now we're up from the three I mentioned, the US and three others, UK, Poland, and Estonia. Now it's up to eight that have committed. Their 2% are actually doing it now. And they have commitments out of 18 more of them, no, of 10 more of them, to get to a total um, in the next four years, to get to a, uh, those number of countries then contributing to NATO's defense. Uh, they're kind of member countries, but they're actually going to start paying for it. So number one, President Trump is making it more, more accountability, more commitment, more agreement that you're part of this NATO deal and therefore you pay into it. The second thing President Trump did in this NATO conference is because NATO had purpose of defending against the expansion of Soviet Russia back when they were communists and they were trying to expand all over the place and NATO was a buffer, an organized buffer against them. President Trump is saying, well, you know, we haven't really had that purpose for decades, so how about this? So he proposed refocusing or repurposing NATO to focus on the following things. Fighting terrorism, keeping an eye on Syria, keeping Syria under control, developing cybersecurity planning together, and China. So in this room full of mockers and goofballs that were overheard at that little, you know, obviously cocktail hour, and they think they're so funny and entertaining, President Trump is saying, let's get serious about this NATO. Number one, everyone should be paying in. And number two, let's have a reason for existing. Let's give ourselves some purpose and some mission. So he's saying refocus NATO's purpose on terrorism, Syria, cybersecurity, and most importantly, China. So this is... You know, I want to ask you in closing a segment, who's really the world leader over there? You know, I know that President Trump is going to get some mockery over canceling a press conference and mockery because these, you know, people cocktail hour conversation guys were mocking Trump and making fun of his press conferences and his lengthy speeches at press conferences. What President Trump did over there was act like a leader. He thought of a plan, a mission for NATO introduced it, encouraged it. He brought substance to the NATO conference instead of cocktail hour chit chat. Uh, two more stories I wanna to try to hit today. Um, and that one story, I wanna talk about um, Kamala Harris withdrew from the race. She, as you know, a, a senator from California and she, um, first, she believes she's in her first term as a senator um, and she was running for president. She announced she was dropping out today. And I want to tie it to this thing I've been trying to talk about more and more, Feminexit. Now you know the term Blexit. It's a hashtag, Blexit, B-L-E-X-I-T, which is black and Latina exit from the Democrat party. 
I want to talk about feminexit, and I don't really mean from political party as much as leftism. We need a feminexit from leftism. Because I want to tell you, when Kamala Harris announced she was dropping out, and, you know, she, uh, I actually, I will say, I was among the people that thought she would do better than she did. I actually thought people would like her. She's, she's very pretty. She's very articulate. Um, she's got some substance to her. I mean, she's a senator. She doesn't just, you know, wander in off the, you know, <laughs> from somewhere in left field. I mean, yeah, she's in left field, but I mean, she's, she's a player already. She's in Washington. But she could not, as she said in her announcement, she couldn't raise enough money. She couldn't do well enough in the polls. And she basically had not qualified to be on stage at the next Democrat presidential debate. Couldn't raise any more money. Major donors were saying, never mind, we're drawing back. A lot of criticism about the kind of campaign she ran. And I know that there are gurus in the political consulting world and the people who run political campaigns, and they have all this, you know, years of wisdom and knowledge about, well, you have to do this first and do this and don't do that. There's a list of things and you never do this and you always say that. And they think they make all the rules. And so they're criticizing her campaign. But I think her campaign failed for more serious reasons than that. But before I get to why I think her campaign failed, I will just talk about this feminexit thing for a moment. There were leftists, the moment that Kamala Harris announced she was dropping out, leftists who were out there tweeting about this, saying essentially the fact that she couldn't garner enough support in her polls and raise enough money was evidence that America is filled with racism and sexism. They immediately went to the argument, well, if Kamala Harris could not garner supporters, she couldn't rally the Democrat primary voters behind her, it must be because of racism and sexism. I'll give you just a couple of quotes. Uh, there is a, um, one was this uh, Eugene uh, Gu, MD. This is uh, from Twitter. Kamala Harris dropping out of the race while only white candidates qualify for the next presidential debate shows that white privilege and white supremacy cuts across party lines. It's not just Trump. We have a racism problem in all of America. Um, and then they have another one. Kamala Harris was the only black woman running. Her presence on the debate stage led to frank conversations about race at a national level. With her out so far, no other candidates of color will be on the debate stage in December. And by the way, the debate stage is in Los Angeles, which is a majority minority city. And so far, Cory Booker hasn't qualified. I want to point out, though, some of the uh, things about this criticism. One is that the woman who founded um, the big anti-Trump, the resistance, that the whole, um, you know, resistance against President Trump, she's one of the lead critics out there complaining about Kamala Harris not being able to actually make it in the Democrat primary. Um, her name is... Um, Okay, Matt, it's not, I'm not going to say her name. Yeah. I, no, actually, I think it is Leah Greenberg. Leah Greenberg. And I think she, yeah. Okay. Leah Greenberg tweeted some complaint about the only reason Kamala Harris couldn't get traction is racism and sexism. You know, some long blather like that. But Leah Greenberg is one who was a, uh, back in 2017, she and her husband created the group called Indivisible, an anti Trump fight Trump at every step. So she's a radical leftist. She's a Trump hater. And she's livid that Kamala Harris is out of the race. But I want to talk to you about reasons I actually think she's out of the race. I think they're far more important and they tie into feminexit. Kamala Harris, to many people's view, 
they, they don't relate to her. They don't sense authenticity in her. You, if you're on the debate stage and you've got that kind of audience and you are saying messages in your opportunities to answer questions that resonate with the American people, your, your poll numbers are going to go up. When you say things that people hear and think, yeah, that's what I'm concerned about. That issue matters to me. And she's saying what I believe. Your poll numbers will go up. But they didn't for her because people don't resonate with her, with her appearance, with her, not her race or gender, but her manner of speaking. She, she has a very uh, angry tone quite often. So I think that she couldn't say things that people could relate to. And the things she did say, she just, people would often comment after debates, she seems inauthentic. But I'm going to tell you another really important feminexit reason. Kamala Harris was prominent during the Kavanaugh hearings when the U.S. Senate was hearing the confirmation to decide whether or not to put now Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, whether to put him on the Supreme Court. She was vicious. She, Kamala Harris, assuming that because somebody accused Justice Kavanaugh, he must be guilty. There's no possibility that this was a false accusation. No possibility. She treated him in a demeaning manner, in, a, in a, an accusatory manner, and I think millions of Americans, men and women, Democrat and Republic, Republican, black and white and every other color, millions of Republicans watched that Kavanaugh hearing, including watching her, and thought, I don't like where this is headed. I don't like the leftist mindset that says, believe the woman that says, if a woman says something happened, she must be believed. And all possible defense for the accused must be ignored. Can't even be listened to. He can't, he's not even allowed to defend himself. He is assumed guilty because accused. This was a Kamala Harris mindset. This turns millions of people off. It turns women off. Women watching that Watching the way that his, Kavanaugh's accuser, Christine Blasey Ford, was treated as though she who can do no wrong, she must never be questioned. And Justice Kavanaugh treated like already tried, convicted, and hung. They didn't like what they saw. They actually want to think that in this country, you have a right to defend yourself. They don't like the radical feminism that was pushing the idea, it's true because she said so. This Me Too morphed into, whenever a woman has spoken, we're done talking about it. It's true because she said so. I think that hurt the Democrat Party more than they know. I think it hurt Kamala Harris more than she knows. Because actually, women and men hearing that, watching that, what they end up thinking was, what if that, the accused, was my father, my husband, my brother, my grown son? Women across this country and men did not like the attitude they saw in that hearing because it was essentially the attitude that says, once an accusation is made, you're toast, you're done, you can't get the office you want, you can't get the job you want, you can't get the appointment you want, you're guilty because someone said so. This will hurt her, did hurt her, I am sure. Even if people don't give that reason to a pollster, people don't like it. And the idea of just running off very quickly on the left to must be racism, must be sexism. I'm sorry, Democrat primary voters and general voters in America chose Barack Obama twice. 
Democrat voters chose Hillary Clinton in a primary. They, the Democrat Party voters, have showed America they are willing to support black candidates and women, and so are Republican primary voters, happy to support black candidates, to support women candidates, but they need a sense of authenticity and they need a sense that this person, I believe in this person, and I'm, I trust this person to do what's right. When you watch the way the Democrats acted on that Kavanaugh hearing, many Americans walked away saying, I can't trust the Democrats to do the right thing. One more quick story and just a nanosecond. I got an email this morning. If you look back at my show, go back to my show on September 25th, we had a guest on named Joel Gilbert. He is a Hollywood producer, filmmaker. He did a, um, no, not a film, he, he did a, like a um, documentary about the Trayvon Martin uh, killing, the Trayvon Martin's death, but really the documentary was about the trial that followed. So Trayvon Martin uh, was killed on February, in February 2012. George Zimmerman was accused, and George Zimmerman was the shooter, but his story of, I did it in self-defense, he was, you know, George Zimmerman saying, you know, Trayvon Martin's bashing my head into the cement, I was gonna die if I, if I didn't defend myself. So George Zimmerman shot Trayvon in self-defense. All of the evidence proved that to be true. All the evidence backed up George Zimmerman's story, which caused originally the prosecutors to say, well, we can't really prosecute because, you know, self-defense, you don't, you don't, you know, you're allowed to defend yourself. But then they had a witness come up, a witness who was allegedly Trayvon's girlfriend, who said she was on the phone with him the whole time, and she backed up the version of the story that Trayvon Martin was just simply happily skipping home from the candy store and was attacked and shot for no reason at all. She backed up that story. And what the Joel Gilbert documentary showed is that the, the um, woman who testified, the young woman who testified as Trayvon's girlfriend was a hoax witness, was not his girlfriend, had no idea what happened that night. She was a hoax witness, the prosecutors, Newer should have known she was a hoax witness. Trayvon's family knew that wasn't really his girlfriend. They brought a fake witness on to back up the story that the Democrats wanted, the left wing wanted, and they had the prosecution and Zimmerman was acquitted because the jury actually listened to the evidence. But the news of today, which I have to go into more another day, news of today is that George Zimmerman filed a lawsuit. George Zimmerman, the falsely accused of murder, and when he actually shot in self-defense, George Zimmerman filed a lawsuit against Trayvon Martin's parents, Florida prosecutors, the defense attorney, Benjamin Crump, who came up with this false witness, and it appears almost certain that he realized she really wasn't the girlfriend. He found someone willing to play a role in that trial, Benjamin Crump, uh, and Rachel Gentile, who was the woman who testified and who was not had no connection and no knowledge of any kind. She just agreed to testify in the trial to try to get George Zimmerman con uh, convicted. So we'll follow that closely. George Zimmerman is actually standing up for himself, saying you know, his life has pretty much been destroyed by a false allegation of engaging in a racist shooting. And he's saying, you know, it wasn't, I was defending myself and the truth came out in terms of him not being convicted, but the damage done by this hoax witness and the entire willingness of the prosecution system in this country in Florida to perpetuate this fraud on the jury and on America must be punished. He's saying, and he has been severely damaged in terms of his ability to get a job, to, to, to function in life. People hear the name George Zimmerman. Hey, aren't you the guy? And what kind of life does he have, future does he have? So he's filed a lawsuit 
Interesting, we'll follow that story. Okay, as usual, we uh, run out of time, so I'm gonna very quickly go to talking to you again about why the stories we talked about today matter to you. In our first story today, we had the story of the um, Turley's magnificent impeachment testimony. As impeachment, as this impeachment circus turns to the Judiciary Committee, many realize the damage done to the House of Representatives, the presidency, and the American government. Jonathan Turley's testimony is must watch. This impeachment has no legal basis. Find that testimony linked at my website at AmericanCanWeTalk.org. Representative Nadler is now engineering the ongoing show trial involving no crime alleged, no acknowledgement of Biden's admitted and related Ukrainian wrongdoing, nothing even close to the honoring of due process, no recognition of the gravity of the impeachment standards or process intended by the founders. No American patriot on either side of the aisle should support this. And again, the impeachment and the dueling reports, a small handful of Republicans have stepped up to the point to point out the travesty of this impeachment process. The Democrats House Intelligence Committee impeachment report based on hearsay, innuendo, supposition and disdain for the idea that the president has the sole constitutional authority to conduct foreign policy again. No American patriot on either side of the aisle should support this. On Trump winning at NATO, this growing worldwide spirit of freedom and rebellion against the ruling class elitists, the only people who don't get it are the ruling class elitists, such as Trudeau and Macron. President Trump does get it and is riding it and he's leading it. Expect mainstream media narratives about Trump being shunned, Trump being isolated, Trump being mocked, Trump harming alliances, but remember, Trump won concessions for more NATO, NATO funding during his presidency, moving the number of countries paying their fair share from three to eight with more committed. More importantly, he's proposing a new mission for the rudderless NATO fighting terrorism, cybersecurity, and China. In other words, President Trump is leading. On Feminexit and Kamala Harris being out, leftists routinely claim racism and sexism when things don't go their way. Their only explanations for Kamala Harris not being able to raise enough money or poll well enough to stay in the race are racism and sexism. While those ugly ideas do exist, Democrats did nominate Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and both raised millions. Other reasons voters didn't get excited about Kamala Harris she seemed to lack a consistent, cohesive message. A lot of talk about that, no message, or really a reason for running. She backpedaled on a huge healthcare question about the right to own private insurance. She's perceived as inauthentic. She whined on the Kavanaugh hearing. She took, she took the side of the accuser against Kavanaugh with no justification. And the feminexit, like Blexit, includes rejecting the endless, you are a victim, you must agree to be a victim. It's a weak argument. For weak people, women are stronger than that. And finally, George Zimmerman, truth has a way of outing itself over time. The truth of Trayvon Martin's death by gunshot from George Zimmerman was tragic for everyone involved, had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with racism, and per Joel Gilbert's research, all actual evidence pointed to Zimmerman acting in self-defense. Prosecutors knowing knowingly presented a false witness in order to frame a murder charge on Zimmerman. Obama and the mainstream media stoked racial tensions and destroyed Zimmerman on a lie. Let's hope an honest judge will rectify this gross injustice. And that, my friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you so very much for listening. 
Tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. Talk to you tomorrow. Can We Talk? Truth About America.